The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 7, 1-10. After he had finished all of his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel I have, found, have I found such faith, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Couldn't you all listen to Logan read scripture all day long? That was fantastic, man. I told him in the first service, I said, I might as well just have him preach my sermon. He, he did that so well. That was Go and he goes and come and he comes. That was great, y'all. Um, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we're thankful uh, for the words that our little brother Logan has read, these words that are true. Uh, Lord, we ask now uh, that your Holy Spirit would delight in helping us to see uh, what we need to see in this word, illuminate to our understanding. Give us grace to see that wherein we fail. Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, mightily prevails. For we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, I trust you all all had a restful and enjoyable Christmas and maybe found exactly what you were looking for underneath the Christmas tree. Yeah, I'm, I am next to impossible to surprise at Christmas. My wife will attest to that, but this year she pulled it off. Uh, this year, I got three volumes of the Lost Sermons of Charles Spurgeon. Been wanting them, didn't know I was going to get them. And I got tickets for a concert in April to my favorite prog metal band, Dream Theater. Strange combination, you may say to yourself. Well, I like my music like I like my theology, heavy. But it, <laughs> I, was, I was really surprised as, as to what I got. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, you got a new suit too, didn't you? Anyway, <laughs> just, just a little something kind of tastefully understated. Anyway... Um, I got a present three years ago for Christmas, and um, it has been probably one of my favorite things I've ever received in my life. And there's a picture of it there. I've worn it every day for the last three years since Christmas of three years ago. It's a little pendant. It's got a cross, and in each of the four corners, you have signs of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's Gospel is depicted as a winged man because, because Jesus in Matthew's Gospel is the fulfillment of all of those Jewish prophecies. He is, that, he is that Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. Mark's Gospel is depicted as a winged lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. John's Gospel, a winged eagle. His divinity soars from page one. But Luke's Gospel, you turn to Luke's Gospel, and it is pictured, and this is based, just so you know, on the 8th century Irish book of Kells. 
this, uh, this emblem here. And Luke's gospel is pictured, Jesus is sort of depicted as a weaned ox. Because in Luke's gospel, Jesus is, as it were, sort of a, sort of a beast of burden, taking care of the needs of those around him, the poor and the oppressed. Now, here's the thing. All of the, of the gospels tell the same story. Uh, in fact, the three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic Gospels. Sin, Greek prefix sin, so in synthesis together, right? Synthetic, a synthetic seeing optic, a synthetic optic, a synthetic seeing of the same story, each told with their own purposes in mind, Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke. Um, but, but there is, say with, with Luke, more of a Gentile thrust, more of the emphasis on Jesus coming uh, to reach out to the needs of, of the Gentiles beyond the borders of, of Jerusalem. In fact, Luke begins his genealogy of Jesus uh, all the way back with Adam, whereas St. Matthew begins with Abraham, a very Jewish thrust to, uh, to Matthew's gospel. But, but Luke is beginning all the way back with Adam, uh, a Gentile thrust. He wants to depict Jesus as one who is coming for the outsider, the ostracized, those who are needy and poor and, and oppressed and helpless, uh, women. Those who, who were disregarded in, in the society of that day. We find Jesus as a servant uh, ready to meet uh, their needs. The needs of those that the Jewish culture of his day had written off as unclean or subhuman or maybe even a threat. And one of the things that was a constant reminder of a threat for Jews of, the, of, the, of that age would have been a centurion. Right? Centurions stationed around, soldiers underneath them. It would, have, it would have made them mindful immediately of the inescapable power of Rome. Rome ruled the Rome. Rome owned everything. And, and a Roman centurion was a very powerful Roman officer who had immediate command, absolute authoritative command of a hundred soldiers answering, answering to him. And, and here we have in Luke 7 this Roman centurion um, you know, showing up seemingly out of, out of nowhere. And it's interesting in Luke's gospel, try to think about what Luke's doing from a literary perspective. This is the first in a string of centurions. This centurion, and, and then when you turn to chapter 23, 47, there's a centurion who looks up and sees Jesus hanging on the cross and says, surely this was the son of God. And then you go to Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 10, there is a centurion named Cornelius who responds to the preaching of the gospel by Peter. And so what Luke is doing is stringing these centurions along, right? Sort of the epitome of Gentile rule and everything that is wrong with, with Gentile rule and, and, and so forth. And would have been considered by, by uh, the Jews of Jesus' day as the epitome of, uh, of, their, of their bondage. Yet Luke is stringing them along to prepare us for the shock of all shocks, that the gospel was for every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel is for the Gentile as well. And so Jesus is this humble beast of burden. He is this servant to the needy and the oppressed and the outsider. But make no mistake, Rome may think that it's in charge, but Jesus is the supreme authority. In fact, we just celebrated it. This, this Christmas season, the incarnation, right? The incarnation, that little baby in the manger scene came to reign as eternal king and show his sovereignty and his authority over all things. In fact, the first seven chapters of Luke's gospel, the five things you and I fear the most, Jesus showed himself powerful over all of those things. He shows himself authoritative and powerful over the devil and the demonic realm, over our guilt for sin, over natural calamity, over disease or sickness, and ultimately even over death. You know, the reality is that Christmas brings fears for a lot of us. A lot of, some of us heartache, um, 
you know, needs that, that, that arise. For, for some of us, this time of year is anything but merry and bright. For some of us, it's, it's hard to trust, hard to believe, can't seem to find faith. Or, or maybe for some of us, when the parties are over and the gifts have all been opened and decorations are coming down, the, the fear and the weariness and the worry set back in. Um, you know, when, when my mama passed away back in the summer of 2015, my wife, Diane, went, went through her belongings and she found at her house in Lebanon several little Christmas wish lists that I made when I was a little boy. And uh, my mom had kept them for all, for all these years. You see, that the first research project I ever engaged in was not my dissertation, but it was every Christmas when that primary source material would be delivered to our mailbox, the JCPenney catalog, the Sears catalog. And for those of you who are native Nashvillians, do you remember the service merchandise catalog? Remember that? Can I get a witness? And I would just comb through the toy sections of those catalogs, and I'd make my wish list for what I wanted uh, for Christmas every year. What are the things on your wish list, right? What are the things you're desiring? And I'm, look, I'm, I'm not talking about whether or not you got that pair of Apple AirPods you were, you were wanting. If you did, it was a minor miracle because they were out all over town. But, but what are the desires, right, the longings, the true needs of your heart? What are, what are the ways in which you, if, if only Jesus would just come through for me, in this way, um, you know, I need it, and, and I, I kind of deserve it. You know, part of, what, part of what makes it hard is we listen to the world. The world tells us, you know, you're basically good. Um, you, you deserve a break, especially when you compare yourself to others around you, right? God's got to take notice of you. He, he owes it to you to do things uh, your way for once. And, and even, even this time of year reinforces it with some of the songs that we sing, right? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. (laughs) He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. You ever think about the lyrics to that song and just think, well, man, I'm screwed. <laughs> you know, the reality is we, we transfer that mentality, though, to our relationship with, with God so easily. And perhaps uh, that, that makes the whole idea of religion and Christianity confusing for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't even necessarily self-identify as, as a Christian. You wouldn't necessarily call yourself a follower of, of, of Christ. Um, Maybe you're simply interested in spirituality in a way that spirituality intersects with your, your worldview. Well, I think this story about the centurion and his servant actually uh, points to the reality that there are actually only two religions in the world, only two approaches to worldview, only, only two approaches to spirituality. One, a religion of human achievement. Two, a religion of divine accomplishment, a religion of human achievement. By the time we get to Luke 7, a buzz about Jesus is all over the place. His reputation for doing some amazing things and word has spread. He has set demoniacs free. He's healed all kinds of diseases. He's teaching with a new kind of authority unlike anyone else. People are, are just clamoring just to try to get near and, and to touch him, right? Because healing, miraculous power is, is surging out of him. We read in 517 and, and 619 and 846. And Capernaum is sort of his base of ministry operations. But he's gone out on a, on a ministry trip preaching and performing miracles. And, and now he's made his way back into Capernaum. And this uh, Roman centurion hears about this Galilean 
who must have uh, some sort of inside connection with God. And right out of the gate, uh, we, we learn something incredibly special and unique about this centurion in Luke 7, and it's this. He actually cares about his slave. He cares about his servant. Servants were common as eyebrows. Servants were a dime a dozen. They were expendable, replaceable. But, but in Matthew's parallel account of, of this story, um, the, the centurion is distraught because his servant is paralyzed and suffering greatly. And, and this wasn't because his servant was merely useful to him. Again, they were replaceable, uh, more or less like livestock. It wasn't a financial matter for this centurion. You get to Luke's account, and the servant is on his deathbed. And no doubt, the, the long, breathless silence of mourners gathering for the death watch had, uh, had begun. The centurion cannot bear the thought of this servant who is in the Greek, intimos, precious, precious to him. He can't bear the thought of him dying. There's nothing like impending death to make us want to run to Jesus. Um, I watched an interview, a video interview a couple of nights ago with Dr. David Pallison. He's the director of the um, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation in Philadelphia. Uh, our own Dr. Virginia Stewart, who, who heads up Hope Ministries, did her training for biblical counseling there. Um, Dr. Pallison has been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. So please pray for him. Um, but he was reflecting in this video on the reality of his mortality and walking with Jesus through it. And he's facing that reality with Jesus today because, as he testified, it was the unsettling experience when he was 19 or 20 of witnessing a couple of people close to him dying that caused him to see his need of Jesus. You see, death is our greatest enemy. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. You and I live in a lifelong slavery to our fear of, of death, right? We, we try to ignore it and avoid it in every way we can. And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, David, why would you bring this up at Christmas? Why would you start talking about death at Christmas? Christmas Eve is coming, right? And in fact, we're, we're even hopeful that, that, that tonight the Titans might even beat the Colts and go to the playoffs, right? Why would you bring death up at a time like this? I bring it up at a time like Christmas because there's a sense in which it's what Christmas is all about. The cradle is the first step to the cross. Jesus was born for this. Jesus was born. He was incarnated, took on our flesh, made like you and me, that he might launch out on a twofold ministry of destruction and deliverance. Jesus was born to destroy and to deliver. We read about it in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since, therefore, the children, that's you and me, all share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, that's you and me, who through our lifelong fear of of death were held in slavery. He came to destroy and to deliver. And Luke is very detailed, right? Very, very detailed as usual. And so he records this story and points out the fact that um, the, the supplication of the centurion came through some Jewish elders, uh, the relaying the request to Jesus. And, and the elders of the Jews begin their appeal to Jesus on the basis of a religion of human achievement. They begin by negotiating with, uh, with Jesus. Uh, this centurion is worthy of you healing his servant because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. Now a little background might, might help here. Rome ruled the world, as I said. Rome was capable of brutal, savage domination 
However, she prized the appearance of what scholars call in Latin the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, keeping all of her conquered territories peaceful and in line. It was good for business. It made for good governance. And so Rome was more uh, than willing for Israel to keep and observe her religious traditions as long as she paid to play, acknowledge the ultimate authority of Rome, pay taxes to Rome, etc. This centurion, however, was beloved by these Jews. This is really an odd situation. A Roman centurion, wealthy enough to build a synagogue in Capernaum, the foundations of which can still be seen to this day. You can visit it. He's a God-fearing Gentile, friendly with the Jews. On the other hand, Jewish religious leaders lobbying for this epitome of Roman domination, this Gentile. So the Jews mount their case. He's a good man. He's a worthy man. He's an accomplished man. He is a wealthy man who has been a great benefactor to us and our nation and our religion. Surely, Jesus, someone who has lived such a good and, and generous life, deserves for you to return the favor. He is worthy of you sparing his servant. Hasn't he earned a special exemption? Hasn't he merited your favor? Now, you might easily enough see through the rationale here, but, you know, we do the same thing uh, when it comes to death, especially when it comes to life after death more precisely. We hear things like, you know, I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person, um, interested in spirituality perhaps, but I'm not particularly religious. I'm certainly not ready to accept the notion that Jesus is God. But if he is, if Jesus is God, then when I die, I'll let him tally up the score. He can see that I've done enough good in my life to outweigh the bad. I've been very generous. I've even given money, I've even given money to church. I think he's going to let me slide right on in. Are you sure about that? You want to stake eternity? You want to stake eternity on your own record of obedience? Jesus, he is worthy. Do this for him. The religion of human achievement. Every religious system in the world, every approach to spirituality and salvation, going to a better place, self-actualization, becoming one with the force, as Yoda would say, ascending to some higher celestial state of self, reaching nirvana, etc., is all based on achieving to be accepted, working to be welcomed, you know, grinding in order to gain. You know, Buddha's last words, through vigilance, awaken, strive. Every religion in the world, every approach to world use a... a a religion of human achievement. You gotta pay to play, except for one. In Christianity, the way of Jesus as a religion of divine accomplishment, he paid so you can play. He says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Do any of you any of you need uh, to hear Jesus' invitation to stop your wearying attempts to negotiate and barter and manipulate him into doing things your way and to lay your worry down at the feet of his wisdom? What happens next in Luke's story reveals the centurion's heart and invites you and me to examine our own hearts. By the time Jesus made it to the house, uh, the centurion had sent friends out to say to this mysterious rabbi, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not deserving uh, that, that you should come under my roof. Surely uh, he could have cashed in on a favor to the Jews, right? I mean, in fact, he was a man used to commanding others. Couldn't he have commanded Jesus as he might have ordered any other Jew to do his bidding? The religious leaders say to Jesus, Jesus, he is worthy. You owe him. 
The centurion says, Jesus, I am unworthy. You own me. Luke's story actually parallels the Old Testament story of Naaman and Elisha, the prophet, in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 27. There, a, a Gentile officer with leprosy, Naaman, hears of this Jewish miracle worker prophet, Elisha. Uh, without meeting the prophet, he receives a word of, of healing. And then, and then he declares, after he's healed, there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Uh, but the problem is, though, he didn't approach Elisha in the humble way our centurion approached Jesus. In fact, he didn't actually like the way that Elisha went about the healing. And then after he received the healing, even though he confessed there is no God in all the earth except the God of Israel, he determined that he was going to pay Elisha back for the miracle of healing with gold and silver. Now, here's the reality. I'm, I'm much like that myself. So, so are all of us. We, we think about what Jesus has done for us. I mean, Jesus, I, I need to pay you back for what you've done for me. Even with the best of intentions, right, of wanting to pay Jesus back for what he's done for us, when we do that, we reduce what Jesus has done for us to something that we can afford, and we miss the gospel. We end up missing the gospel. Our, our centurion, on the other hand, he doesn't even want Jesus, a Jew, to be tainted by entering a Gentile house. What if the Messiah came near to a sinner like me, he's thinking. He knows what it is to command soldiers under him with absolute authority, but he recognizes now that Jesus has ultimate authority to command disease and death. Jesus, I am not worthy. You alone are all worthy. I know you can do whatever you please. I am not going to make myself above you, equal with you. I'm not going to try to barter or negotiate with you. Right? We, we, need, we need the same, the same posture, right? To, to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have no negotiating power with you. Right? As Jonathan Edwards once said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Jesus, I, I have no negotiating power with you. Um, I need your righteousness. I have none of my own. Right? We, we need to learn to sing as Augustus Toplady taught us, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply that I cross, I cling naked, come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. January 1st, New Year's Day, 1937, Jay Gresson Machen was lying in his deathbed. He had founded Westminster Seminary in a fledgling little Presbyterian denomination. He left Philadelphia with a bad cold, wound up in North Dakota with pneumonia, trying to raise money for for his ministry, and he's out there, he's lying in his deathbed, he sends a telegram back to his colleague, back at the seminary, John Murray, professor of theology, and the telegram simply said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, there is no hope without it. The active obedience of Christ, Christ obeying the law for you and me, for lawbreakers like me, like, like you, Jesus fully obeying all righteousness, fully fulfilling all righteousness, and his righteous record accredited to your account so that the Father sees you in Christ every bit as righteous as his Son is. There's the hope. Paul said as much in Romans 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end. The Greek word is telos. If you look through a telescope, you look to the end or the goal. Christ is the end, the completion, the goal, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to him and say, I am not worthy. You alone are worthy. Own me, Jesus and his righteousness is credited to your account. You are seen by the Father as a law keeper rather than a law breaker. You see, Jesus has been good for your sake because you can't be good for goodness sake. Neither can I. And when we are bad, 
and I am. And when we cry, and some of us have things that are worth crying over in our lives, things that heart water is the only proper response. I know because you, some of you give me a privilege of a front row seat in your lives and the things that you're going through when we're bad and when we cry, when we, when we pout. Some of us pout, right? We pout in our house, and if somebody pouts in our house, we say, are you being a pouty poot right now? And here's the thing. If you ask someone who's pouting if they're being a pouty poot, their pouting goes to a whole different level of pouty pootedness. When we're bad, when we cry, when we pout, when we can't be good for goodness sake, you better watch out. No, look up. Look up. Hebrews 7.25, that man at the Father's right hand who always lives to intercede for you. You better watch out. No, you need only look up at that throne of grace of which we read in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all points tempted, even as are we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach boldly the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, the, the good news the gospel is when we are bad and when we can't be good for goodness sake, when we cry and when we pout, Jesus doesn't scold us for our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's a religion of divine accomplishment. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3, he says, I want to be found in Christ, 3 verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Luther, Martin Luther lay dying, 1546, dying of cardiac arrest. He knows he's dying. He's laying there in his bed. He asks for a scrap of paper. He makes a little note on a scrap of paper and leaves it on the nightstand next to his bed. The next day they find it, and on that note was, as it were, his last testimony. It's really the gospel in a nutshell. Two sentences, one in German, one in Latin. Virsen dal Bettler, Hakaswerum. We are all beggars. This is true. Right? We, we come in a beggarly fashion like the centurion, knowing I am not worthy. Jesus, you alone are, are worthy. And, and let us not miss the fact that it wasn't just the centurion who encountered Jesus. Right? His servant certainly experienced Jesus in precisely the way he needed. Jesus gave the servant a foretaste of when he will make all things new, where there will be no more death and mourning, sickness and sorrow and tears. Look, I will, I will tell you my greatest privilege of being here at Christ Presbyterian Church, my greatest privilege is when you privilege me, and I know I speak for all the pastors, when you privilege us to be at the graveside with you when your hearts are breaking, when you privilege us to be at the deathbed, to be at the sickbed, to hold your hand and to walk with you when all any of us can do is hold our breath and try to absorb the grief. It's the greatest privilege that I know, but I gotta tell you, I can't wait for the day when there will be no more need for graveside services, when there will be no more need for sick beds and deathbed visitations, when Jesus will come and say, I've made all things new and death will be swallowed up in victory. Can't wait. And, and, and this servant gets a, a foretaste of, of that. And the centurion is interceding to Jesus on his behalf. The centurion is actually fulfilling what is known as the priesthood of all believers, right? Going to Jesus on behalf of his servant, on behalf of this man who works under him. Right? Imagine by application, right? For those of you who have people who work 
under you, for you. They work with you. Imagine a situation where they were the recipients of your efforts to dignify them and their work, to be concerned for them, where you would seek the redemptive and healing presence of Jesus in your working relationship and the work environment with them. Man, that's part of what National Institute for Faith and Work seeks to inculcate and incubate. Right? We can be the priesthood of all believers for one another. And you turn the page in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 8, and there's the woman with a flow of blood, cannot be cured. She's ostracized. She presses through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Imagine if we would work with one another and live with one another and, and worship and play with each other and do life together such that we would be the priesthood of all believers. And it would become our reputation in 2019 that, yeah, we take each other by the hand and we go together to find the healing hem of Jesus' garment. Because we need it so, so desperately. Jesus was astounded. He marveled at the faith of this centurion. He said, I haven't seen anything like it in all of Israel, he said. Yet what was the essence of this centurion's faith, right? Maybe you're hearing, thinking, man, I'm, I'm kind of new to Christianity. I don't, I don't think Jesus would ever say, man, you got an impressive faith. What was the, what was the essence of of, of this centurion's faith? Was, was it such a massively sophisticated, super sanctified sort of faith that you nor I ever stand a shot at getting Jesus to notice us? <laughs> no. In fact, in Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says, look, you don't need your faith increased. I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant yourself in the sea, and it'll be done. And look, I know how little a mustard seed is because my son, who is now 18 and much taller than I am, when he was about three years old, came into the kitchen shaking a bottle of mustard seed and the lid came off. Mustard seed went everywhere. We're still finding them to this day in the cracks and corners of our kitchen. A tiny little faith. And what was the essence of it? This centurion had not been catechized. He had not been to Sunday school. He had not read a bunch of theology books. His faith was simply, I know I am not worthy. And Jesus, I know you are. Do for me what I can't do for myself. And Jesus says, that is an impressive faith. <laughs> See, here's the reality. Our faith has an object. But the object of our faith is never our faith. Lest we be tempted to turn our faith into another work whereby we try to get God satisfied with us and keep God satisfied with us. Our faith has an object, but the object of our faith is not our faith. The object of our faith is our faithful Savior. See, this is a religion of divine accomplishment on, on our behalf. The bottom line, Jesus, I am not worthy. You alone are. Own me. Have me. Come to me. And don't miss the implications of what's going on here. As a Roman centurion, he knew the power of Rome over a conquered people. He had seen it, he had participated in it. Yet now he faced something over which he had no commanding authority, something that Rome could not rule, death. And here he is, a representative of Rome, bowed, unworthy, before a Jewish rabbi who was claiming to be the Messiah. This is tantamount to treason. Did he even fully realize what a subversive act this was? Him saying to this Jewish rabbi, you are worthy and I am not, flew in the face of everything that Rome claimed about itself and its ultimate authority. It was a denial of Caesar Hokurios, Caesar is Lord. In fact, it was a declaration, Jesus Kurios, Jesus is Lord. That's a kind of gospel boldness I saw in an email from a former seminary student of mine uh, this week. 
He is now back in his homeland ministering, and he, he forwarded an email that he had received from another young man who was a national there uh, who was preparing for ministry. I just have to read a part of it here. You'll understand that I have to leave some of the details out because of the sensitivities around these things, the danger, right, the danger around these things. This young man says, I was taken to the police station for a while a few days ago. Later, I was directly brought back to city number one from city number two by our two directors and two national security guards in city number one. I just sneaked back into city number two from city number one yesterday, and I'm asking God to protect me. I am prepared to get persecution together with my brothers and sisters here. The next two months are busy because I have to take the preaching qualifications exam in February. I'll spend a lot of time preparing for the exam. I just took the Bible test last week. It took me eight hours. Then I took part of the theology and part of the church governance exams. Each part of these also took me more than eight hours each. There are four other theological assignments to be completed this semester. I've been scheduled to preach in the next three consecutive weeks in small gatherings. Ask God to strengthen us and to lead his sheep. But I'll spend at least two hours a day in my Greek studies. I hope to complete the teacher's homework and exam requirements. Please pray for me and our family because the recent persecution is very strong and I do not know what will happen. Jesus is Lord. There is, there is only one God in all the earth. It's the God of Israel. It wasn't Rome. It was not these two national security guards and the government they represent persecuting this young man. You know, it's like our centurion's testimony acknowledgement. There is one God of life and death. It's not Rome. It's not the centurion himself. It was not the religious traditions of a religion of human achievement. It was Jesus alone. And we need to take this to heart. I need this desperately because my bent ever since the Garden of Eden is I want to be my own God. And I come by it honestly. I come by it because my first parents in Genesis 3 were told by the serpent, eat the forbidden fruit. And when you eat the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open and you will see that you are God. And they ate the forbidden fruit and their eyes were open and they saw what pathetic excuses for gods they turned out to be. They saw there is a God and we're not him. Interestingly, when you turn to the end of the book of Luke, chapter 24, after Jesus has died and has risen, he encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They prevail upon him to stay for supper, and they break bread together, and he bids them eat the bread. And Luke says their eyes were open, and they recognized him for who he was. God was in their midst. You've been invited by Jesus to come and take this bread and take this wine. And have your eyes open to see that he is, by his Holy Spirit, very much present here to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You know, I was, I was given that necklace three years ago with signs of the gospel on it. But Jesus gives me something even better. Every Christmas, I'm reminded, he gives me the gospel itself. The Messiah has come and taken up residence with a sinner like me and like you. And he gives us these gospel signs here at this table because he wants you to hunger for the gospel itself. He wants you to bring here uh, not your, your best behavior as though you think that's your ticket here. He wants you to bring your needs, your hurts, your hopes, your failures, the, the fears maybe that even made it difficult to enjoy Christmas this season. He wants you to bring all those things to this table and to say, Lord, speak a word, speak a healing word. And he'll say, I have and he's going to say to you, beloved, taste the word. Taste the healing word.